This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host, Nabil Mahmoud from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. I'm the guest here from Santa Clara, California. This is Dean Nelson. When are you aiming the guest? It's a, it is a strange position you're in that. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on. Come on, I've been trying to get on this podcast for a while. <laughs> yeah, hey. All right, well, thank you very much, Dean, for taking the time to join us today. Before we get started, could you at a very high level share with our audience who you are? Sure. What are you- My name is Dean Nelson. I've been in the digital infrastructure industry for 32 years now. I feel very old. I started at Sun Microsystems, if you remember that company back in the day, in 1989 on my 21st birthday. I was there 17 years, two different stints, and I won the startup company in the middle called Allegro Networks. I did that for three years, which is awesome. Then I left Sun when Oracle acquired them, and I went over to eBay and ran Global Foundation Services there for seven years, and then I took a sabbatical while my daughter was looking for colleges. And then I jumped into the Uber train for three years, rode that, and then I left on my 51st birthday. So I did 30 years exactly, which was really cool. And then I started doing consulting and advisory work, joining boards. And then I joined a board of a company called Virtual Power Systems and ended up stepping as the interim CEO and then took over the role and continued to drive that. And that's now rebranded. We did this just in the last couple months to Cato. And that is the Latin word for all-knowing. And that's what autonomous digital infrastructure needs to have. And in the middle of all that, I created this group called Infrastructure Masons. And that's our professional association, hence the hats we were talking about. This is uniting digital infrastructure professionals all over the world. So we leave our companies at the door, we connect professionals, and we tackle problems across diversity, inclusion, education, technology, and sustainability. Well, that's why we've got you out here, because we've got a lot of commonality and synergies. But before we get started, what led you to the profession? How did you get started? As a matter of fact, I just got uh, one of your photographs with your stash and the PCB, uh, <laughs> which we're going to share with our audience. But, all right. All, all I know is that the stash I thought was cool back then when I was 21, you know, get it. And I used to have long hair, Nabil, as well, longer than yours. But I started looking like an 80s reject. You do not. You actually fit really well. <laughs> you're like literally one of the coolest looking people in our industry. So especially if you got your hair down you're, and with the hat. The hat does it. So just saying. I'm officially, I guess, the infrastructure mason's hat model. For the record, for the record, I, I had long hair at one point also. I just want to set the record straight. Did you? Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> what this many, many synergies. <laughs> many, many, many synergies. So how, how did you get started? So ironically, I, I was that kid in, in high school when I graduated, I thought, I'm really smart. I'm going to go get a job. I don't need to go to college. I, I can go back and make money. And then got educated really quick. I worked for a company called a manpower. Do you remember that? They do uh, temporary job workers. So I'm like, wow, I could just do lots of hours and do all these things. So they threw on the, the job. original, the original gig economy. Yes. And they threw at the jobs that no one else wanted to do. And I did those for a year. And I said, <laughs> what am I doing? I was making no money and, and basically doing stuff I really didn't enjoy. So I talked to my dad and he said, cause I was going to go into to arts, the creative side. I, I, I love graphics and visuals and, and all that. And, uh, and he said, well, you were actually really good at electronics. So have you ever considered maybe just going to a trade school? And he said, you aced all those classes in high school. Cause it, it kind of came natural to me. It made sense. And so I, I went and looked at a couple of trade schools. My mom took me over to Phoenix and I chose DeVry and I did an associate's degree in electronics. And I had, let's see, Sun Microsystems came and visited our campus. 
And in that campus, they, they basically hired half of our graduating class because they needed lots of people. This is in 1989. And I went to California. I got a new car. I went out there. I had no idea what the Silicon Valley was. I had never heard the word Unix. I had no idea what compute was except for this little computer I had, but no clue. And I walked into it just completely blank. And so I didn't choose the industry. It chose me. I happened into it. And then from there, I learned what I call the University of Sun. Because Sun Microsystems was an amazing place, like innovations and and just the people and what they did. And I think I learned technology, I learned business, I learned strategy, I learned people management, I learned all those different things at Sun. And a lot of people I really respect during that first, first 17 years. So, and then from there, it just, I kept trying different things. I was doing component level debug on hardware on the manufacturing line at Sun in Milpitas, California. So wow. broken boards, we go back, troubleshoot them because the electronics were pretty straightforward. I just didn't know what they were used for. Then we started, I started understanding servers and storage and memory and the network connectivity and how all these things went together and started going into the other aspects of it, which was networking, then, then software and then data centers, ironically. That was in the latter part of my career. Yeah. I think it's a, so what, it's, it's, a, it's not a, it's not an, it, it makes all the sense of the world to us from the inside, understanding how you go from a trade school into electronics and that kind of expands it into our world. I think when people look from the outside, looking into our industry, to the extent that they ever look into our industry, mm-hmm. uh, they, they assume that we're all some level of computer engineer. We just love, we've always been building computers and we just got out of our lab coats and and into a data center and it makes all the sense in the world. And I think part of what we've done with the foundation, part of what you've done with, with Infrastructure Masons, right, is, is to try to broaden that uh, demographic. And you are case in point, right? That, that was, it was literally the opposite. You wanted to go into graphics and art and, and art and, and, and all that. And was it, do you think it was a specific way that your brain worked that you kind of opened yourself to all this, uh, to, to, to our industry in general and then excelled once you got it sun? Or, or was it more specific that you were so into the kind of electrical engineering element of it that it all just kind of fell into place? From my, from my standpoint, I, I, I liked electronics. I understood how addressing worked on buses and I could do the math and that, like that, that made sense. And then I started figuring out how these things are actually used. And so I didn't have a computer science degree, right? I had an associate's degree in electronics, so I could do component level debug. And then I learned along the way. And by the way, I think that one thing that we lack in our industry right now, actually across the world, is apprenticeships. If we did apprenticeships today to people to truly learn a trade like this, they would accelerate everything. And so I got to tell you a story. Uh, Scott McNeely, right? One of the, the first employees, I think he was employee number two at Sun. Andy Bechtelsham was the first employee. During my, my tenure at Sun, I had, I had the chance to fly in the corporate jet. And I weaseled my way in there, by the way. I was at this conference in Dallas. And Scott was there and we were talking to customers and things. And, and I was on the engineering side. So I, I was in there to basically share what we did for ourselves, right? With some hardware and those things. And we were doing a ton of stuff on data centers around that time because we had to deal with hardware two years before it went out in the market. So we saw a lot of the trends first. And so we're sharing that. Anyways, we're in Dallas and then the weather's coming in and like all the flights are going to get canceled later. I'm like, oh crap, I'm not going to get home. I said, Scott, can we just jump on the jet with you as a joke? And he goes, wheels up at five o'clock. You're not there. We're leaving you. I'm like, Okay. So three, three of us went and like jumped on the jet. But the point of this story is as we started going up, cause he, our stewardess was Scott in this little eight person jet. So he's, he's sitting there and he turns around and he goes, all right, you guys are all new to this. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to lay back and I'm going to go to sleep and you guys are not going to talk. <laughs> I'm like, all right, great. No problem. So then we get up to 30,000 feet. 
And at 30,000 feet, he wakes up and he doesn't stop talking. It was like another level. And it was amazing because he went off on the education system. Okay. And I don't know what he's doing right now. His new thing is about how education can be changed because the system is kind of broken in the way we do things. We force things for a certain amount of years with a serious amount of money being spent. And then we put people out and they have to relearn a whole bunch of stuff. The apprenticeship link. So what he said is, I think that people should go out in the industry first, right? They should just get a simple thing, understand it. Then they should go back to school. I'm like, Scott, that's what I did. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I went to an associate's degree. I got this one. I learned at the University of Sun. And then afterwards, I went and got a bachelor's degree at DeVry again, right? In technical management because I wanted additional skills. And he goes, exactly. So that right there, like he, it was hilarious in that conversation, how he said Stanford University Network, which is the acronym for Sun, right? He said the Stanford system, how it's done and all the other Ivy League schools, as well as this, we should be doing it in a different way. And hence, 30 years later, he actually went back and he's tackling that, which is kind of cool. It, it, it makes it makes all the sense in the world. There's there's no question. It's from so from an educational perspective, it's great, right? So that bridges the challenge that we have been talking about to a degree. Mm-hmm. What you have experienced in your career and what you experienced on the story that you just told, and there was that like in the eighties and nineties, there was that training and education on the job sites. Are companies practicing that today in no. folk that you have been engaged with? No. And so when I was at eBay, we had this intern program that I thought was pretty cool. It was a little crazy what they did. This is back in 2012, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, 2010, sorry. And they were, they were getting interns from all these different places and they were paying them way too much money and they were showering them with all this stuff. It was not a real experience of what an intern would have. It set a bar that is going to be very hard to actually meet for the rest of your career. Right. So what I think I think we're lacking here is that everyone's saying they have a hard time getting talent. Okay. The problem is we don't have our education systems lined up to be able to say this industry, digital infrastructure specifically, is an incredibly rewarding career. All of us are perfect examples of it. The 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 blessings bestowed upon us of happening into this industry is incredible. So how do we go back and get additional people? So we've got this program in iMasons, our scholarship program. We have our million dollar challenge, right? We're almost there to the million dollars raised and we have more money than we can give out scholarship wise. We're giving away hundreds of scholarships, but we don't have enough people coming in. And even with that, you look at it, one of the big hyperscalers said they're trying to hire 5,000 data center people, just data center, 5,000. So they can't get enough people. Yet, if you look at the root cause Nabil, you and I have talked about this. This is from the very beginning, all the way through the system. I, I look at that, these, these dots are not lined up. It's like a supply chain. There are broken links throughout that entire chain that suddenly we, we leech off a whole bunch of the resources going somewhere else. Why? Because they either didn't know it existed or it wasn't something that sounded interesting. And then by the time they get to that point, they're veered. They're going a different way. So I, I think that there is a bigger problem here. And that is that we have a shortage of people. And then you look at it. Okay. All of us have gray on this and two thirds of us are Caucasian males over 50 <laughs> on this video. Right. And so if you look at I'll that, agree with you on shortage. everything except the over 50 part, but I, I do, I do give you the fact that I look like okay. I'm over 70. So I'm okay. 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 I'm over 50, but, but the point is we're all getting up there in the retirement side of this. There's this wave coming that it's going to get worse. And so how do we get, <clears throat> we need the immediate. We need the midterm and we need the early on. 
So maybe like what you guys have been talking about from the beginning. Right. And it's so in line with, obviously it's, it's so in line with what, what our fundamental goals are, which is why the iMasons and Nomad Futurist kind of ideology is, is, is a perfect match, but it's a, it's, it's an excellent point. You know, I, I see a lot of, um, I have young kids, my kids are five and, and nine years old. And, and, and we see as we've tried to get them involved in, in, in education that there's a push towards things like the Montessori method and a lot of this kind of experiential learning where you allow the, the children to learn at their own time in, in ways that, that, that interests them. And all of the things that they're doing involve some level of technology. Like I, you have to pry an iPad out of my kid's hands, like it's Charlton Heston holding a rifle. So it's, it's what's, what, what we've always focused on is this notion that they understand how technology works and don't understand why technology works. So people all, I think, of the generation that came after mine and certainly the, the kids today, they all have a fascination with technology. They use it constantly. Mm-hmm. So clearly they're interested in it. But I think that, that, that the, the idea that in order to benefit from that interest of technology, you need to be to get, to follow a career path that that bridges or or supports the underlying technology that powers our digital world, you need to be an an engineer in like the 1970s version of that word is absurd. And I yeah. think a, a lot of it is us not properly framing what it means to be in our industry and the fact that just just the sheer interest in in technology is enough and there's such a wide breadth of of how you can be involved. That really anybody that's interested in any any element of it could participate in 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 various roles within the critical infrastructure industry at large. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, Phil and I, when we started this whole initiative, Dean, that's the core of it that we wanted to address. So you've got the generational divide, you've got the technology divide, you've got the cultural divide, you've got lack of women and minorities participation, and yep. it's not reaching out to the broader market in the underserved areas. What Phil just said, and adding to that, as far as my kids are concerned, it's not that I'm talking to them about being in the technology business, but my kids, 13 and 15, they're very much so in that because they see that around. They're having these conversations with my network of friends and peers, and they hear this and they're like, oh, that's kind of like a cool space to be in. So my 15-year-old decided to pick up coding by himself, self-taught Java programmer at 15. Rock and a fair example, can we, like a rock star in our industry. That's yeah, not that's fair. Good. It's just not, not normally <laughs> like walking to the airport with my kids. Like nobody comes up to me and is like, oh my God, you, you're that guy, right? Yeah, nobody comes up. <laughs> yeah, well, the idea, the idea is like we need to actually have a broader reach. We need to have these conversations at dinner tables whereby an average family is probably talking about being a doctor or an attorney or a fireman or a cowboy, whatever mm-hmm. the case might be. This needs to reach to the broader audience where, okay, you know what? Information technology is the core. It's the basis of every single business and dynamics on a go-forward basis. This is the data rush. This is the future. How do we go about expanding that reach and having these conversations at dinner tables with folks that don't understand the core of IT? So like any other complicated topic, you got to dumb it down. And so I, I use this example with... Can you give analogies to understand, help people understand exactly what the technology is? And can you make it real world applicable? So I remember, so my daughter's 24, by the way, you guys are really making me feel old. <laughs> I started late. I started yeah, late. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, my fault. Right. My fault. There you go. There you go. So, but I remember when my daughter was in second grade, I went to the school she was at and it was kind of that career day talk kind of thing. So I came up with these magnets and I had a picture of SpongeBob. 
and I put the Magnus up on the board, right? And then I said, and I, I, I forgot if I had a television or something. Anyways, I was saying, when you're watching that SpongeBob thing, do you know how that works? And you got them all interested at that point. It's like, ah, SpongeBob. So relevant. Then I said, imagine if SpongeBob was all cut up into pieces and they had all these pieces and we transferred him across there and then he reassembled on the other end. Right. They're like, how do, what? And they're, they're trying to understand that. And so helping them just see what technology is underneath to help them consume something that they do every day. So if you think about that, that's like early on, can you make something simple and relevant that would be interesting to them? And then you start to go into the middle school and the high school and then the college side, and it gets more and more relevant to it. So I spoke at a number of colleges and I had the, the deans bring in all the disciplines. So from engineering side of it to finance, to business, to all this. And I, I had them all in the room multiple times. And I said, so what's the cloud? And just ask them the question. And they all had this, this understanding of something. And then I said, okay, well then where does it live? How does it work? And we started going down that path. And then, then, then I asked the question, so finance. So what are you going to focus on when you get out of school? Where are you going to go? What industry? Well, investment banking or something, I guess I'm like, okay, do you realize that, I forgot what company I used then, but one of these private equity companies had done $32 billion worth of acquisitions or investments in the last year. Hmm. All technology-based. That was just data centers. And so explaining to them how finance ties into this, I said, technology is one thing. Being an engineer is one thing, but there is every freaking discipline inside of digital infrastructure. Every one of them. Planning, accounting, supply chain, orchestration, fault management, risk tolerance, like every one of the things that you're studying has applicability inside of digital infrastructure. Even if HR, <laughs> planning, right? People management, everything can be tied together. So first off, if you look at an industry that is, is growing, everyone in here uses this infrastructure and we only have half the people on the planet on it so far. Just imagine. And today, if there's 8 billion people, we're going to have 135 billion things on there by 2030. Behind that's going to be a trillion sensors. The amount of data that's going to be generated is a tsunami. So all of a sudden, you've got all this use. Wouldn't you like to be in the fastest growing right, career industry in the world? That's what we all use every day. And so getting them excited to understand what it means to say, I got a, an accounting degree. Great. Can you go back and apply that towards all of the billing across everything in a co-location company or inside of a product company or inside of a end user company? Like there's just so much stuff that can be applied because we need them all. So uh, does that help? Absolutely. That's something that we've been talking about, but like to simplify it, that degree is amazing. What I typically say is we are the largest growing industry and we're the only industries that's got sub verticals inside of it. So finance, HR, and all the other elements that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, that's amazing. I think we are on the same page with the same synergies. So talking about tech, what excites you? You've seen the peaks over your 32 years of career. What's exciting? <laughs> What's the next big thing that you're looking at? You know, I just had a, an experience two weeks ago that really made me feel like a kid again. And I went to Orbital Studios in Hollywood and they, they have these virtual stages. Have you seen those? So, okay. So the way movies were shot, think of Star Wars back in the day. They had characters, they had to create models. They did 3D replicas of small things to be able to shoot these massively complex scenes, right? <laughs> Flying, shooting, blowing things up and all that. Now you look at CGI and that was the next thing they could start to incorporate it. Today, they're doing 
basically Star Trek's holodeck. Okay. So think, think of this, you walk on and they say, I want to be on Saturn. And then the entire experience is around you. What they've built are these 20 to 30 foot high full visual stages. And what, a, what blew me away in this was all the cameras are associated and this thing is created in like a half circle. So they're able to create the entire environment and shoot the movies where multiple camera shots of the same characters who now are fully immersed in the experience. Instead of a green screen and looking at some person look like Gollum, right? But it's a green monster. It's just a person in a suit. Now they are looking at Gollum and they, it, everything is more real. So Mandalorian shot completely on that. A bunch of scenes in the new Batman movie shot completely in that. They can do 12 hours straight of a sunset because the perfect environment is set. And what's neat is the cameras themselves Imagine the zoom, the aperture, the focus, all of those pieces are tied to lasers all the way around this thing that are syncing to be able to know that when that lens zooms into that character, it now renders the background in real time. So as the camera pans across the screen, you see the actual thing moving as what would be behind that character and a real character inside. So if anybody's interested, go look up the Mandalorian set. That is incredible. Now, how does that tie back to our technology? First off, that amount of data that's generated, they're doing 1.3 gigabytes a second off of those cameras. Okay, of data. Just and imagine four of those constantly filming characters. Then they have to go back and there's rendering aspects. But they try to film to screen. Anything they say, remove post-production. So anything you can do around that to be able to now make it faster and more realistic. So they do that, but that means they're going to have to basically render a bunch of stuff locally. And so when I sat down with the engineering team and that over there, I was, I was saying, this reminds me of Uber. So remember the autonomous vehicles way back three or five or six years ago? So they had a group called the ATG, which is Advanced Technology Group. And inside of that, they had all the, the development of the cars, the LIDAR, right? To how the things are going to be doing self-driving, et cetera. And what my team did was uh, we, we had the depots where those cars would go and they would offload the data. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, it's four terabytes a day worth of content per car. I'm like, mm -hmm, okay, but four terabytes a day. All that data that's generated, imagine these cars are going the same way. They have 16K cameras on them all across it. 95% of that data isn't needed. Why? Because they all drive the same route, see the same thing. All you want is the delta between things that are different. I recognize something or I didn't recognize something or there was some kind of change. So that means that you could prune 90 plus percent of that information at the edge. Okay, now think about that set. Four cameras and all the shots. Do you really need to roll all that back up to the cloud? All the data that's going to be transferred. Secondly, all the data that's going to be stored. Thirdly, all the data that potentially is going to be processed, but it's on something somewhere. So what can you do to minimize the amount of stuff going out that way? So that's how the, the edge is going to manifest. From a technology standpoint, I'm just walking in there going, man, this is just so cool. <laughs> I'm on a set. And then they shot up, they, they put up this whole thing about Mars and a new movie that they were shooting. And I'm in the set <laughs> immediately. You know what I mean? So that, that kind of thing for me is where I think the metaverse and what we're talking about for the future is going to be incredible because the fully immersive experiences that are going to come, I hate these big headsets, but at some point you're going to get to that environment where it's like being in the same place. Yeah, I, I took my kids. I was in LA uh, a month ago and I took my kids. <laughs> yeah, there it is. They're Google glasses. 
No, nice. I took my kids. I could, I took I took my kids to to Universal Studios and then went on the the Harry Potter ride. And I hadn't been on a ride in 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 years and years, right? And I've never been a big roller coaster guy. So I get on this ride. They strap you in, and I'm thinking well, it's going to be a roller coaster like I remember roller coasters. And yeah. and you start going, and you're basically like in Harry Potter, like you're in the movie flying, and there are things flying next to you, and it's like you're totally in like soul screens. Yeah. And I got just as sick of not sicker than I normally did on a roller coaster, but it was like I was flying through the thing. So they have the ability to replicate not just the experience, but the responses. And we were probably in in a in fairly enclosed area where it looked mm -hmm. like we had gone thousands of miles, notwithstanding the fact that it looked like it was a totally different world. Right. But it was like my it it effectively tricked my brain into thinking whatever my brain was supposed to be thinking where I was about to be eaten by a pterodactyl. So, so yeah, mm -hmm. kudos, kudos yeah. to, to, uh, to, to the metaverse. But is there anything about that, that, that scares you? Obviously you get excited uh, about all of those things and you can, there are pluses and minuses to all of these autonomous vehicles and all those things. But is there any element of, about it? Because the people that are really at the forefront of, of technology are way ahead of the game, right? They can create those, those amazing cameras, amazing technologies, but a lot of it is being managed, regulated, et cetera, by people that are so far behind, behind the times that they take the, they, they take the, the fancy sounding words and, and technologists word for it in, in a certain sense. And, and it seems like the, the laws are not like keeping up with the potential mm. for a lot of this technology, which both stifles the innovation and the adaption of it, but in some ways allows uh, it, it, things can just run wild over humanity in a way that is just not where we become reactive instead of proactive. Now, let, let me hit that on a couple of different levels. So I think that technology that's going to help us has always been there. It's going to be faster than ever. And I, I actually believe that the self-driving pieces are going to come to fruition. Level five is going to be hard, but think about the 80-20 rule. The majority of places right now, you have self-driving capabilities. So it, the biggest self-driving test is Tesla. I have one, right? Every time I drive, they get data from me. Okay, turn it on. What do they see? Imagine that <laughs> massive thing. So I think that layer is just going to, it's going to be helpful. Then there's the next layer where it takes us to a whole nother level. And so while Uber may have been ahead of, ahead of people on this, I do believe this is going to come to fruition as well. And that is... The, the flying cars. Everyone says, oh my goodness, the Jetsons. Well, I saw it. Like it is incredible, the technology that's coming out. And you've got all the different companies like Bell and everybody creating vehicles. But in the end, they're creating highly resilient vehicles that are fully autonomous, that are 100% run on batteries, not combustion engines, et cetera. So they've got fault tolerance in it. And I kept looking at this like, okay, I, I live in Saratoga, California. Okay. And when I was working at Uber, I had to go to San Francisco and it was two hours door to door in my commute each way, two hours. So I'm four hours on the road. The promise of being able to drive to the train station, get into an autonomous vehicle, right? That flies, go up over and down. And I land in San Francisco and walk to the office because it lands on the high rise that I'm in. I, I can live two hours away and get to work in 15 minutes. That's going to change everything. And this is not a difficult problem to solve, especially when you look at it. The most complex is on the ground. It's all the other stuff they have to worry about in the, the majority air. majority of flying is autopilot and it has been for 50 years. Right. I'll be on those things. 
Or you so can be in a tunnel. Te- yes. And there you go. There you go. The Whatever they called it. What's his name? Tesla. Boring. Elon company. Musk. Elon Musk. Boring. Man. Yeah. Boring. It's, the, the thing is that the simplest, we did, we did the skyscrapers to get more people in a city, yet we left our, our transportation horizontal. Okay, we stacked up some freeways, but in the end of it, why don't we use the air? You know, so to me, that, that's another technology that's going to come. The thing that scares me to answer your question, Philip, is that there's technology and I believe the things that are not in place to, to govern it is around these audio and video deepfakes. That will scares me to death because all it takes, like think about that studio we were just talking about. They use Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine, and there's a couple other competing products of it, but they're able to create like real experiences in it. Now, you imagine all of the voice from somebody, the facial expressions, the all those things can be captured off of social media, off a podcast, off a video class, off of interviews. Those things that can be created can start world wars. Totally. Right? You see the ones like the people messing around and you have like Tom Cruise, like saying whatever... Yep. Well, whatever I, I think that's actually helped Tom Cruise's career. Yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. There um, are benefits. There are benefits right, on that right. side. But, but but I think the the part with the the thing that scares me the most is that this is not just for world wars. They can mess with people. So think about any theft. What are they doing? They're doing facial recognition. Okay, so now they're doing voice augmentation. Like they're all of these things can be thwarted in some way. So technology, by the way, will advance, and everyone has to accept the fact. If we had said, well, we got to stop that, we'd never have the combustion engine. We've never made progress. The industrial age wouldn't have happened. Why? Because the horse and buggy's just fine. We don't need to do that because, my goodness, that's going to lose jobs. In the end of it, it's all going to change. So technology is going to happen. It's the governance. Like you were talking about, Philip, the thing that, that, that really gets me is, if you think it was a Turing, I think, that does the, the rules of computing, <laughs> I'd do no harm. Like, like there's, we've got to think through what's going to happen with artificial intelligence and the way that this can be applied. And I think that uh, like anything, technology can be used for good and bad. So the investments that are going in for new technology development, great. The investments for thwarting the bad use of technology needs to be doubled down. On. Right. And who's for that? Yeah, that's I a think- governmental responsibility, right? So if that no, I think a part. I, I would say I would say a part of the responsibility is us because as technologists, what we think and what we want to do is never actually translated into the other mediums. And but what the I people that, that are is, innovating for the most hmm. part are innovating as a as a result of a sheer profit motive, for the most part, right? For the most so, part. So yeah, so it becomes difficult to to regulate, like for them to self regulate. We've proven that, and to, to think that. The 90-year-olds that, that run the country are going to be responsible for, for regulating us. It, <laughs> well, it's a little difficult. I don't want to be ageist about it, but at some point, just retire. I want to retire. What is, what is, why? Why? And you're not well, even think, 50 yet. What do you think about this, Dean? I think a part of it is a challenge of us translating that in this overly simplified term that the marketeers, the lobbyists, and the government bodies can understand. What they're trying to do, in my opinion, is they're trying to keep up because we've got a new tech, new buzzword every day. The marketeers yep. leverage that and create this fluff around what the yep. core and purpose fair. of that We're is. We're talking and to you, Jamie and Alyssa. <laughs> and then that gets lost in translation. Personal examples is like I sit on a board for a publicly traded bank and our chairman says, okay, well, we are going to cloud. 
how are we doing that? Well, isn't it automagic? Doesn't it happen automatically? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yep. I got you. Yeah. It just, it just goes in the cloud. That's that it works in the cloud. Exactly. It's cloud. So when you, easy button. When, it's like when, Staples easy button. <laughs> there you go. They did pretty good with marketing. So when it goes to the lobbyists, when it goes to the government bodies, they're just trying to keep up. By the time they get to it, the technology yep. is already old. Have you ever heard the, uh, like marketing. when, when, when someone like uh, the Apple CEO, like Tim Cook or Mark Zuckerberg or any of those guys are on Capitol Hill, the types of questions that they're asked, it's embarrassing. Like they almost don't want to bring them in, I think, because they know how embarrassing it is. Like the, how, how rudimentary some of the questions they're asking to the point where it's impossible for even the people to answer because they don't know, like how did Mark Zuckerberg answer a question about how does somebody log into Facebook or whatever? It's just like, I, 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 I don't know what this question means. Yeah, I, politics, like, I, I think that <laughs> I like to steer, steer away from politics. Clearly, clearly which is saying. why I'm trying to steer you towards it. I'm there trying you to go. get you okay. out of your comfort zone. Let, let me dive right into the pool there. How's that? <laughs> I look at, uh, I'll just narrow it down. If you think about our industry and, and Nabil, what you were saying is, is, is right on. By the time technology is, is adopted, regulation is coming up behind it. And so if you think about our industry from a data center perspective, just that alone, back in 2008, I think it was, Jonathan Kumi, Dr. Kumi over at Stanford, had put out this report based on the DOE assessment of digital infrastructure, basically data centers and power consumption. And so the forecasts were, this is going to get into double digits. And what happened was Christian Bilotti, uh created this thing called PUE, which you guys know about, right? PUE was then formalized into through the green grid. So Kristen basically donated it to, to, to the green grid to push it. And then that became law, but it was self-regulated. And what happened with that? Instead of the government coming in and saying, this is what we're going to do because you need to be more efficient, the industry self-regulated. So PUE started to become a forcing function because I don't know if you, you remember, I, I put out a blog post in 2008 about a data center we built in Santa Clara and it was at Sun Microsystems. And I said, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And so I went out and said, we have a PUE of 1.28. And everyone's like, BS, no, 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 no. And it started all this stuff. And then about six months later, Google came out with theirs. Okay. And that started forcing everybody to start comparing. And that competition was good. Because in the industry, now it became one of those things like, well, wait a minute, how much am I paying? From the end user standpoint, what's the PUE? Wait, well, how, so hold on. I want to see this efficiency. And that drove this pr projection of double digit energy consumption down to singles. And if you look at it today, we have 7 million data centers. There's 105 gigawatts of capacity built. There is 594 terawatt hours of energy consumed. And that represents 2.4% of the global energy draw. That is digital infrastructure as it sits today. It would have been double digits. We would have been on the UN and everything else's radar. Yet we went back and drove that back down. Okay. It's not stopping by the way, because a lot of the low hanging fruit has been picked. But now when you think about the ICA, I don't know if you guys have seen the IMASIS climate accord. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sustainability. If you think about the DOE just put out again, I'm oh, sorry, not the DOE, the SEC. So the security exchange commission has basically said companies need to report on their 10 Ks, the impact of climate change to their business. That is the first time that the government has actually said, we want to know what climate change means in supply chain and disrupt, like all of those pieces, that suddenly is a forcing function that people are going to do some things. That's the right kind of question. Instead of we are going to force you to do something sustainability wise, X, Y, and Z. 
We want to understand. That is going to force the self-regulation and the competition, the good competition. Because now every consulting company in the world is going to say, we can help you get that information. Bam. And then every company is going to try and figure out how do we do our investment? How do we secure ourselves? How do we go help? And in the climate accord, we struck that chord with all of these different companies. How can we come together and do something as an industry? All of us uniting on something. And so we said, there is one. We can go back and accelerate the actual shorten the time to get to carbon neutrality as the first step towards net zero as an industry. And to do that, we're going to do this with common methodologies for measuring carbon. And we're going to put carbon labels on products, materials, the data centers, and then we're going to be measuring the carbon intensity and power. And so I look at that combination where we are going to help self-regulate by driving efficiency, by working together on this as an industry versus as we need government regulation to come in and actually police this. We're policing ourselves and we're going to drive efficiency and sustainability faster and better than ever because we're working together. Yeah, that, that eases the process whereby if the, the regulators start coming in and telling us how to manage and manage our business, we're always going to be fighting back and we're going to be wasting right. more time and energy. At least we are the subject matter experts and we know what's going on and how can we actually understand access capacity and better utilization metrics. Well, that does help. Great. It does, ha- it does yeah. help that sustainability also drives benefit to the bottom line. It's really, really good Absolutely. optics, right? And and hopefully we can shame other industries where that might not be the case to to, to drive efficiency. But lead uh, by example. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, no question. So with all the tech that you're involved in, great story that you share about metaverse and where we are headed with holograms and and whatnot. You know, when we look at what's portrayed out in the general populace, whereby many science fiction movies present a very dark vision of the future, Mm. are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of humanity? You know, six months ago, I was very nervous and uh, the nervousness is still there because this, the impact of climate change and the rising temperatures around the world is real. And there's a lot of people that don't believe it. And, and for me, this is, again, politics and religion. You'll never win, ever. In the conversation, it's always a debate. So lead by example. And so what I love about this is all of these different companies. We have 155 companies that have signed up because those companies care about the impact of climate change. And so the reason I'm optimistic is that these are some of the biggest companies in the world. We have AWS, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Schneider Electric, Siemens, (laughs) Cisco, like big companies are coming together saying, okay, we're behind this effort. We're going to go lead by example and do it, which means that the timeframe for us to be able to say, how do we claim carbon neutrality can be shorter. And then that's going to lead to the next big bump. So I'm optimistic because the sum can be greater than the parts. All these individual companies that are doing these incredible things are not gonna solve the problem by themselves. But my God, when you put them all together and the buying power and the, the, the reaction that you can get, because imagine if each of these companies put into their RFP process, the requirement of a carbon label on every product, the requirement of a carbon label on every data center. What's that gonna show? The embodied carbon of those things. And then also the carbon neutrality or intensity or the carbon intensity of energy. That's going to drive the next PUE race. Look how efficient and green my data center is. And what that is also going to do is force them, because the customers are going to be asking for it, prove it. That is going to have self-governance in and of itself, because I have an RFP process out, and I'm going to go back and check it, just like your engineering design. 
is that truly what it is? Is there really a risk? Is there really capacity? Like you suddenly are going to check it from the labels. This is one of the big things that came out of the climate court is that the fact that we have a label just by putting it on, even if the data behind it is crap to begin with, we have data, which means the data will get better, which means the label is the mechanism and the methodology behind it is the thing that will drive the behavior. Just like PUE, everyone's saying, oh, they're measuring it wrong, whatever. It doesn't matter. In the end of it, you're going to get held accountable. So you better have your math right because somebody's going to ask and they're going to audit that. And then if they don't like what they see, they're going to go with your competitor who has better math. <laughs> so it's going to drive the right behavior that I see. And so that's why I'm optimistic that we can actually do something. Because in the past, it was like, oh my God, what? it's like a drop in the ocean. What can you do? But in the end of it, we are the foundation. When you think about it, the internet of everything runs through the stuff that we build as an industry. And it's just getting bigger. So if we can lead by example, to go back to what Philip was saying, other companies or other industries would be able to say, okay, how do they do that? Well, why can't we do this on this side? You know, at the same time, we should be leveraging other industries' experience. Real estate is a very good one. They already do a bunch of tracking of materials inside of buildings. We should be doing that in data centers. Totally. The, uh, as, as, we, as, we, as we wrap this up, because we're conscious of, of your time, you have a storied career, right? And we talk about how our goal collectively, Infrastructure Matrons, Nomad Futurists, is to bring younger people, different perspectives into our industry. If you are, if we manage to hit our target demographic and there is a young person who doesn't know, they know vaguely that they, 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 they want to make money, they want to be in an exciting industry, they don't want to just play with spreadsheets all day. Uh, which is primarily what all the other industries do, as far as I can tell. The What would you tell them is a, is a good first step? Like, what, what should they do? Well, let me flip that around a little bit. Because Wait. when you think about the latest generations, actually, the, the I would say Gen Z and, and millennials, they have a lot more tie to purpose than many other generations. They were left the world by the boomers. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> there you go. And if you think about it, <laughs> baby boomer. No, I'm Gen. I'm Gen X. I right? I know you're. You're not. You're too. You're too young to be a boomer. Thank you. So. Thank you. I feel okay. Right. Right. Thanks, you're, Dad. And you're too young to be, right, <laughs> to right. be a Gen X. So I I think that what we have to understand is that we, we have to resonate with them versus us telling them. So that uh, what I'm with that is that I have this conversation with my daughter that. Can you find, what is your purpose in life? What is it that you're actually doing? Why do you do what you do? If you can find the why and you can resonate with that why, every day is better. Namil, you and I had this conversation in Virginia. It's like, if you can really get that motivation, you spark amazing things that can come out of it. And I got to say, like, I, I love technology, but I love what we do. When I say that we're the underpinning, the internet of everything, it's true. What we build, the world runs on top of. So what can we do to go back and help that? And I think that if we can resonate with the, the students and the other folks that are coming into the industry, and by the way, that also from an ageism standpoint means other industries and people that are being impacted. Gig economy to all other types of areas are gonna be replaced by AI and other things. How do we get them in? It's every level that we need to go back and get resources because this industry has an incredibly important purpose. We connect the world and let it operate. We enable opportunity everywhere in the world. When you land internet and you land technology into these places, you give them a chance to do something that they've never been able to do, to do before. Just like education. It's 
it's, I don't know, it's like water and electricity and housing and internet. <laughs> Everything starts to go together and opportunity opens back up. So I would say that we need to find and help the people understand the why this industry makes a difference because it does. Whether it's sustainability and what we're doing with diversity and inclusion, what it means to everybody around the world, that's, that's the message. Because from there, I think we'll get people coming in droves. Uh, well, I'm inspired. I will certainly get my infrastructure masons stamp on my lower back. Uh, I, I <laughs> no tattoos are so, required. <laughs> Dean, before we let you go, what would you tell the younger audience? What advice would you give the younger kid looking at a career or looking at getting into the technology space? So there are thousands and thousands of people out there that actually want to share with you what their careers are like. I would say, first off, this is a world that the majority of people don't even know exists, yet everyone depends upon. So discover, go start looking at what, what, is, what does digital infrastructure mean? What is underneath it? And what's neat is I, I put out a video called How the Internet Works on our scholarship page on purpose, because as we people point them over there and say, let me show you how this all comes together. The basics, simplifying it down. Take a look at that video. That video itself helps you understand when you pick up that phone and you're on TikTok, what happens? Okay. When you're sending the message, when you're doing whatever on the internet, it all traverses the same way. And so imagine all the pieces around there that you could have a career in because it's only going to get bigger. And I'll tell you this, what's great about digital infrastructure is that the majority of people can work from everywhere. We just hired two people at iMasons, right? So Rachel Dobson, she decided when she joined in as marketing, she went over to London. We're like, great, work from London. Then we hired Emma, who came back in, and she said, I'm going to work from Hawaii. She's in Honolulu. Great, work from Honolulu. Then I found out on a call today, Rachel said, oh, I'm in Alaska. Oh, what are you doing in Alaska? Oh, I'm trying it for six months here. I'm like, great, work in Alaska. <laughs> That's a perfect because nomad story. Oh my God. You said Boom. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. What a what a perfect way to mic drop. Outstanding. Dean, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much, I, Dean. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you guys for having me on. Finally. I'm so glad I was able to spend some time <laughs> with you guys. And I will return the favor. I would love to have you oh. come over to that other podcast, which is secondary to Nomad Futures. Oh, I know. Uh, Phil, I, I know. I, I, uh, thank you. Thank you for saying that, Dean. But uh, yeah, it is. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com. <laughs>